Hey everyone, welcome back to Hypothesis. I'm Amandine. And I'm Killian. And today we're going to be talking about our favourite things in science. Well, actually more specifically, Killian will be talking about his <laughs> favourite thing in science, his obsessions, which if anyone knows Killian, I'm assuming you all know that it's adjuvants. <laughs> Yeah, and if you about... don't know Killian, you probably don't even know what an adjuvant is. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. so uh, I guess I've got to start talking about vaccines more broadly because I'm also just obsessed with vaccines in general. And then I'll get more deep into uh, adjuvants and that kind of thing. So, yeah, just a very general overview of what vaccines are, even though everyone's probably sick of hearing this. Yeah, everything I'm that's so, now. so done. So, um, yeah, the, generally the process of vaccination um, the aim is to train your immune system. Uh, so this doesn't always mean that like you're trying to mimic the natural infection rate. So this is something that sometimes I think people get a bit mixed up that uh, they think the vaccine is always supposed to look uh, exactly like the actual pathogen or mm. you know the infectious agent, whatever you want to call it, um, and trigger your immune response in the same way. But that's not always the best thing to do because sometimes these pathogens, infections, um, they, they've evolved ways to make sure your immune system isn't very good at recognizing it or doesn't remember it long-term. So a lot of the time vaccines are actually trying to provoke your immune response in an even better way than the actual infection does. So obviously if some natural infections where you get infected once, you'll never get infected again. So in that case, a vaccine that mimics the natural infection would be fine. Um, but in other cases, that's definitely not the case. So uh, yeah, that's just a point I wanted to get in there at the start. And it is relevant to adjuvants, so <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that later. Um, so yeah, your immune system is broken up into the innate immune system, um, which sort of generally recognize pathogens and they're not really that specific. They don't really learn from responses, although that's really starting to, that's a controversial thing to say now. They kind that of learn from, that they don't learn from responses, the innate immune system. There's some wow. evidence they do, but it's not in the same way that the adaptive immune system does. Are they so just talking that's about a topic the for cells? another episode. <laughs> yeah, the cells, sorry, hmm. of the innate immune system. Would they not just die? Sorry, that sounds, but like don't cells just die after a bit? Well, well cells do die, but they also can, uh, you know, they have offspring that can be epigenetically reprogrammed. Oh, yeah. So I won't, I won't go into all yeah. that stuff. That's quite complicated, <laughs> but that's definitely something to talk about in a future episode, actually. Um, so yes, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. So the innate immune system is like the first line of defense. And some of these innate cells, especially these cells called dendritic cells, um, are really good at presenting parts of a pathogen, um, which are called antigens, which you might've heard of, um, to adaptive immune cells. And they're the ones that remember um, what the pathogen looks like and uh, either produce antibodies if they're B cells or kill cells directly if they're T cells. So mm -hmm. those, the B cells and T cells are the two main parts of the adaptive immune response. Wait, what do the T cells do again? They kill them. So they kill cells directly. So they release oh, um, yeah, certain like, enzymes and yeah, um, that, like, breaks them down cytotoxic and molecules that actually physically force cells to, um, to die or to break apart and then die. Um, and then, yeah, so, you know, there's many different types of vaccines, which I think I mentioned before on the podcast, but uh, I just, again, briefly give a reminder. So there's subunit vaccines, which is sort of um, where you have a small part of a pathogen. So like the antigen that I was talking about there, the part of the pathogen mm -hmm. that you want your immune system to recognize. And you have that plus an adjuvant. So what an adjuvant is, is something that um, triggers your innate immune system to recognize this as a threat. So it's something yeah. that sort of activates immune cells. 
Um, because if you just have a part of a pathogen, it might not recognize that this is a threat unless you have an adjuvant there. Then you have yeah. some of the more modern vaccine types, like you're seeing with the uh, COVID-19 vaccines. So you have mRNA vaccines. This is something that Amandine probably know a bit about yeah. as it's quite <laughs> genetics-based. Yeah. So mRNA vaccines, it's essentially using, like the name suggests, the mRNA, which is the messenger RNA, which is essentially, it's sort of like genetic information um, that's about to become a protein. I think yeah. that's a good. <laughs> yeah, so it codes for the protein that you want to recognize. So instead of using, let's say, the subunit, whatever it was, a protein from the subunit, here you're using the mRNA, which codes for that exactly. subunit, for example. So if you are making a subunit vaccine to SARS-CoV-2, you would put in spike protein and an adjuvant mm -hmm. into a vaccine. But if you're making an mRNA vaccine to SARS-CoV-2, you're actually introducing that genetic data that will then become spike protein once yeah. it goes into your cells. Um, exactly. So uh, then there's also viral vector vaccines, which are in some ways similar, where you're essentially introducing a virus that's not harmful, um, but all it does is once it gets into your cells, all it does is produce spike protein. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just another way of getting your cells to produce spike protein. So anyway, those are the main vaccine types. I just think that's something to... Uh, talk about before I get deep into adjuvants. <laughs> so adjuvants, uh, these compounds that stimulate immune responses, um, they've traditionally been uh, developed empirically, which means not really done by evidence. It's sort of just throwing yeah. stuff at the wall. So for example, it might have been known that, you know, in ancient China, they used a certain, you know, compound from a certain plant Mm -hmm. um, and put it into people's cuts and it made them resistant to certain diseases. And they didn't yeah. know why they did this. It just ended up being a tradition that actually helped people. And some of those compounds are still in adjuvants today and we don't know exactly how they work. Um, so that, that sort of, I, I do realize how some people don't like adjuvant research for that reason, because they think it's still yeah. this sort of backwater kind of like, oh, you're just trying out different things and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. And some of the adjuvants that are actually approved and are used in vaccines, they work really well and they're safe, but we don't actually know why. We don't know yeah. exactly how they work. Um, obviously in the last few years, like we have started to figure out parts of the reason why, but um, we haven't got the whole picture yet. Yeah. So um, yeah, actually Charles Janeway, who any good immunologist will know because he wrote uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the main textbook uh, which is Janeway's Immunobiology, which every immunology student uses. Um, Never he, heard he, of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, he, he called adjuvants uh, the dirty little secret of the immunologists because it was something that, you know, we use, but we don't actually understand. Um, yeah. And I just, I don't know, to, to a lot of people that maybe is a bit off-putting, that's just like, mm -hmm. oh, we don't really get this that's weird but for me that was like really interesting it's like I really yeah. want to know how this works um, yeah I'm sure lots them. of people are going like lots of research groups surely are looking into how they work and actually not they... as many as you what? think <laughs> then why um, do you do <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not as popular an area I think part of it might be because um I think a lot of the successful adjuvants if you're going to translate them to actual vaccines and actual like clinical things yeah um, they need a lot of funding behind them. So a lot of the, the research on adjuvants is done in pharma companies. So for mm -hmm. example, GSK does a lot of adjuvant research. They're sort of yeah. like the leading pharma company doing that. So maybe it's partly that pharma are leading the area. Um, but yeah, I think part of it is still the fact that 
because we we haven't known for so long how they work and maybe people don't want to go into it because they're like well yeah. I'm not going to be the one to figure it out you know mm, it's uh maybe. it seems like such a big challenge almost and because yeah. um so when I say adjuvant you know something that stimulates the immune system there's so many ways to stimulate the immune system adjuvant is like a quite a broad term like as uh, a lecturer I had once said dirt is an adjuvant you know if you put <laughs> dirt into your into a cut you have you'll get a greater immune response because there'll be things in the dirt whether it's bacteria or other loads of other yeah. things that will tell your immune system something's wrong so some mm -hmm. people think that then well, what's the point you're going to be looking at everything but yeah um i think with some of the new approaches you can sort of narrow it down to okay what's sensible to test so mm -hmm. for example if we want you know the type a, immune response type a let's say just a type a immune response <laughs> not that this actually exists so this is just the example um and you know from your study of immunology that a certain receptor on a cell is, is activated and eventually leads to type one or type A, I, I should say, responses. <laughs> um, then you might say, okay, let's come up with an adjuvant that attaches to this receptor, just like a pathogen would. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of thing that's being done now. You're sort of having things developed that specifically interact with. So they're like components. making a molecule or a protein or whatever. Yeah, so you, a lot of the time you're making a synthetic version of a particular yeah. molecule. So um, like these things are called TLR agonists, for example. So you have TLRs, which are toe-like receptors, which are mm -hmm. found on immune cells. So you essentially just make a protein or whatever it is that you know will interact with that receptor very well so that yeah. it, it activates it. So mm -hmm. that's just one approach to adjuvants. A lot of them actually work by damaging cells because that's a signal to your immune system that there's danger. Yeah. So, for example, um, the most widely used adjuvant is something called alum. So it's like aluminium particles. And this is actually one of the ingredients that anti-vaxxers like to point out in vaccines where they're like, there's something fishy here. This is, you know, this shouldn't mm -hmm. be in a vaccine. Why are you putting aluminium into me? But it's yeah. such tiny amounts that I think I heard, maybe this isn't true, but um, <laughs> if you, <laughs> just a little disclaimer, but something on the lines of like, you consume aluminium all the time. If you like cook things in aluminium foil, like these tiny, tiny amounts that yeah. end up in your food. And you know, th that's the kind of level we're talking about in a vaccine, but it's, but because it's delivered a different way, you know, into your, mm -hmm. into your muscle or whatever it is, it stimulates an immune response there. Cause obviously when you're eating, it's a very different response. Yeah. So, um, so even though it's this tiny amount, it won't do a lot of damage, but it'll be enough to maybe damage a few cells in the area and tell your immune system, okay, there's something happening over here. And then mm -hmm. it can interact with the vaccine, which is yeah. what you want. Um, so, yeah. And so I just think that that's amazing that the adjuvant we use all the time is one of the ones that we really don't have a brilliant idea of how it works. We know yeah, what that's... things it activates once it, once it does that but we don't know exactly how that starts, how the process starts. How does it kill the cell? And why does this form of cell death lead to this type of activation? Um, it's, yeah, but it's still how poorly do you understood. Know, that's the thing. I don't <laughs> understand how it's poorly understood because if you have, that makes no sense. If you have alum, whatever, you put it in, You if, do they know how it, they don't know how it kills the cell? Is that what you're saying? Well, I think they, they have ideas. So you just, there's lots of different theories as to, how it could work because we know it does loads of different things but yeah. we don't know which of those things are most important for generating oh, immune response okay. right. so for example like one thing i can think of is it used to be thought that this adjuvant called alum um 
mainly relied on something called the depot effect, where it essentially um, would bury itself almost in, in part of your body. Um, mm-hmm. Like form this, if you think of like a little crevice, like a little hole, like yeah. a crater. Let, let's say it forms like a crater in, in, yeah. in one of your tissues. Okay. And Sorry, then, uh, just like <laughs> so chuffed that you came up with the crater analogy. <laughs> I was, because I actually, it actually makes sense. It's helping me understand it. Um, so, Sorry, yeah, okay. So anyway, Alan forms a crater. So in let's your say it forms this body. crater, which yeah. is actually called a depot, but we'll call it a crater. Um, yeah. So it's, it's constantly releasing small parts of the alum yeah. as time goes on. So there's, yeah. lots, there's lots of alum comparatively at the start of the crater and then little mm-hmm. bits start to be released over time. And it was right. thought that this sort of s- slow release over time was generating some kind of immune response. How much time are we talking? Because I thought that it was like a fast enough response. Like, you know, yeah. from when you get vaccinated to, you know, when you're immune or whatever. Yeah, th- this is like over the, the course of like days or, or okay. potentially a week, right. something like that. Um, but then, so that was like thought to be, that makes sense because we can see these depots. So we know, mm-hmm. um, I'm sorry, it was, it's not just the alum that's being released. It's also the antigen. For, so the part of the vaccine that forms this crater that then parts of the vaccine get stuck into and get released from. So anyway. Wait, the, the antigen, <laughs> I forget what the antigen, what an antigen <laughs> sorry, is. The, sorry, an antigen is part of like the protein that you're trying to vaccinate against. So for example, a spike protein in, yeah. in SARS-CoV-2, that's called an antigen. Oh yeah, sorry. The yeah. antibody does an antibody bind an antigen. Yeah, an antibody yeah. binds onto an antigen. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was getting mixed up there for a second. Yeah, antibody binds antigen. That makes sense. So yeah. yeah, so they thought because they saw these depots, they saw that they were releasing antigen over time. They were like, well, this must be how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, but then uh, someone thought that that might not be a great explanation. So they found a way to vaccinate mice and actually find the depot site and surgically remove it shortly after yeah. vaccination and the re- immune response was almost the exact same so it's not the fact that it's being released over time you know so that's just one example we, we know it does loads of things but we don't know exactly yeah. which of those things are leading to the immune response that we want to see so hmm. we know it works so we we use it but it would be great to know how because then we yeah. might be able to make a better version of it yeah yeah you can optimize it and use it maybe for different things and stuff like that exactly so um you might be thinking you know does it really matter then? Uh, you know, if, if this works, do you need to optimize yeah. it? Uh, so in the case of alum, it's really good most of the time at stimulating antibody responses. So as you said, mm-hmm. antibody binds onto antigen. That's a really good way of uh, protecting yourself from infection. And, it, and antibody responses are particularly good at protecting you early on. So yeah. for example, if you have a virus that infects your cells, but you have antibodies against this virus that are floating around your bloodstream or mm-hmm. floating around your tissues, it can grab onto the virus before it even gets into any of your cells. Yeah. Whereas if you only have a T cell response, it will only kill cells once they're infected. Um, I so, have a question that's yeah. kind of a bit unrelated, but are your an- are antibodies just always floating around in your cells? Uh, well, not in I the cells, they- sorry. They're, or no, they're, no, they're yeah, no, sorry. Yeah. I don't mean cells, I mean blood. Um, yes. But because I thought that Okay, so they are always floating about in the blood. Because well, at different levels, yeah. Yeah, so, that's what I was going to say. Like, once you're infected, I thought there was like an increase, like a surge in like the amount there is, for exactly. that specific thing. But there would be a small amount under yes. normal conditions. Yeah, there are... is usually a small amount under normal conditions. Sometimes it's so small that it's hard to measure. Um, yeah. 
But the thing is, these memory responses that like once you've been reinfected mm. with something or once you've been infected with something that you've already got the vaccine for, that's way quicker than generating yeah. the first response. So it might have taken you, you know, a week or two to generate antibodies the first time you got the vaccine or were infected. But mm -hmm. then the second time you get infected with it, your body knows exactly which responses it needs. So the response can be almost instantaneous, you know, okay. comparatively. It's like a day or two before your immune system is up and running. So then it kills every part of the virus or bacteria or whatever it is quicker than it can infect you. So you usually don't even experience any symptoms. You don't even realize you've been infected. Yeah. Um, which I think is just amazing. Um, pretty cool. I'll give it to yeah. you. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So what I was saying is alum is quite good at inducing antibody responses. So for a lot of things, this is quite good. But the thing is, not all infections are best dealt with by antibodies. There are some mm. viruses that are very good at, let's say, getting into to cells very quickly. Um, like... If, especially if it infects like your upper respiratory tracts and that sort of thing, then sometimes an antibody response, unless it's a really, really powerful antibody response, might not be enough to stop some level of infection. And mm -hmm. um, you might also need a good T cell response to kill some infected cells. Um, because especially if a, if a virus is moving between cells in a particular tissue, they might not spend that long in the blood once they're infecting your cells, oh, if you know yeah. what I mean. They might just yeah. sort of jump from cell to cell. Yeah. So, Ideally, for most infections, you want a good T cell response and a good antibody response. Mm -hmm. um, makes sense. Especially if you're talking about large numbers. So if you're infected with loads of viruses at once, so if someone really coughs into your face or something, you're, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to want as broad a response as possible because you don't want it to be able to take hold in any way. Um, yeah. So yeah. Uh, so a, a, a challenge in adjuvant research is to find an adjuvant or more than one that can stimulate this T cell response. Um, because we don't really have one particular adjuvant that's really good at doing this. So alum is kind of a standard for antibody responses. We can probably yeah. do better, but it's quite good. Mm -hmm. and, but for T cells, we don't have a, a similar standard. Right. Um, so that, that's would one you, of the big challenges. Would you use two adjuvants together? Or is that not a thing? Um, you could, but um, see, a part of the challenge of adjuvant research as well is that while you might know exactly what you want to activate in immune cells, if you just activate them all at the same time, yeah, you could you could activate too much and you get immunopathology because actually, okay. uh, so you get things like autoimmunity, inflammation, all mm -hmm. these really bad symptoms, and that's actually how, as we said before, when I was talking about bats and all that crack, um, <laughs> that's that's actually how COVID and some other infections kill you. It's your immune response overreacting. It's not actually mm -hmm. the fact that COVID is killing loads of your cells. It's that your own immune cells are killing too many of your cells. Um, so that's the challenge with adjuvant research as well. You're trying to activate the immune system in an appropriate way. You're not trying to overactivate it to go crazy. You're just trying to activate it to say, this little thing is what you need to worry about. Kill that, don't kill, <laughs> don't kill everything. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you need to find adjuvants that are safe and effective, which is, is difficult, but Again, anything that makes it into a vaccine has been proven time and time again to be safe and effective. Mm -hmm. And alum yeah. is a perfect example. Um, yeah. It an activates these antibody responses, but it's also really safe. Mm -hmm. um, it's funny, actually, how sometimes in when you're looking at things in vitro, so we talked about these techniques before, where you're looking at cells in a dish versus doing things mm -hmm. in like mouse studies. Yeah. 
you have sometimes things work very different in cells than they do actually in living things. Yeah. So I think alum, if you use that in cells, like let's say you inject some alum into this plate of cells you have, a lot of the cells will die. Mm. Um, and it will look like something that like you should not put into a person. Like it looks yeah. really bad. Yeah. But then in the context of an actual whole human body, if you put it into someone, it's fine. So that's mm. why it's important to, to do these studies on mice and other things to make sure that what we're learning in cells isn't wrong. Because for certain yeah. things like adjuvants, it, you need this sort of broader picture. The immune response interacts with so many different other parts of your bodies, other tissues, other cells, that just looking at a certain type of cell in a dish isn't going to tell you the whole story. Mm. Yeah. Um, and then another thing I want to talk about, because a lot of the new vaccines don't have adjuvants. Uh, mm, <laughs> so yeah. why, why bother uh, with adjuvants at all when some of these vaccines, they have good antibody responses and T-cell responses, actually, um, like the mRNA and the viral vector vaccines that are being developed. Some of them are showing really good antibody and T-cell responses. So, you know, is adjuvant research yeah. done for? Why, why does it still exist? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to justify <laughs> some of the reasons why. And um, so one thing is the adjuvants are able to, if we get it right, promote immune responses of a particular type. So while at the moment, mRNA vaccines and viral vector vaccines are really good at provoking these antibody and T cell responses, that's great for like, let's say a virus. So, mm -hmm. so I just sort of want to briefly say, so an mRNA vaccine, the mRNA, which is this thing that makes protein, that's yeah. something that usually isn't floating around your cells for very long. You make it, you use it to make protein, that's it. If you have mRNA floating around that isn't inside your cells or is somewhere that it isn't supposed to be, your immune system will know that and it will say, this must be a virus. Because yeah. I don't make, when I make mRNA, I know where it goes. It doesn't yeah. go there. <laughs> like like your, your immune cells can actually, and your, even your normal cells can tell when something isn't where it's supposed to be which mm -hmm. I think is also really interesting. But uh, so it, then it alerts the immune system to say, I've probably been infected with a virus. Yeah. So these mRNA vaccines are almost acting as if they're a virus, which is great. But it also means that these mRNA and viral vector vaccines that have these great responses for COVID, if you try this for a bacterial infection or for something else, like malaria, which is a parasite, it, it might not be as good mm -hmm. because it might be telling your immune cells, I'm infected with a virus when it's not. And then you might get an immune response that isn't actually good for dealing with that infection. So we're lucky in a way that these new technologies are really good for antiviral responses because that's what we need right now. But yeah. there's certain pathogens like malaria that will probably need new approaches. And a lot of people would argue we'll need some sort of adjuvant because we really need something strong against these more complicated pathogens. Um, like malaria is an example because it has a really complex life cycle. It's really well adapted to living in people. Um, you know, it gets into our liver and in our blood and it goes between the liver and blood. And because it, it, its life cycle is quite fast, it goes from having like eggs mm -hmm. in our body, which is kind of gross to think about. Um, <laughs> but these eggs, <clears throat> if you're thinking about an immune cell looking at these, an immune, the egg will look very different to, to the, you know, to the young yeah. parasite, to the old parasite, because it, it changes so quickly. That means it's antigens, the things that our immune system recognizes also change. Mm. So if we want to deal with malaria, we need to get a really strong response and fast, because if we don't get a fast enough response, the malaria will 
parasite will grow into something else. It's no longer an egg. It's now a larva. It's now mm -hmm. an adult. It's now, you know, other things. So that's where you'll need an adjuvant, um, for example. Mm -hmm. um, another reason to, to use adjuvants is that uh, they can provoke longer term immune responses a lot of the time. So for example, we don't know with these current vaccines for mRNA and you know, viral vector vaccines, how long the immune responses last. They look really good, yeah. but will they still be there next year if you get infected? Or is, is the nature of the way they provoke your immune system enough that your immune system knows there's something wrong for a while, but then it doesn't generate these special like memory cells, which remember things over years. Because some infections and some vaccines are really good at provoking these really long-term memory responses. So you'll never get infected again, but we don't know if these new vaccines are going to do it. Thankfully, adjuvants could be used even with these other vaccines. They're not just for subunits. So mm. you could have a viral vector or an mRNA vaccine that also has an adjuvant in it. But that hasn't really been done yet because these technologies are so new that research using adjuvants with them is also very new. Um, and then, oh yeah, another really interesting thing, I think anyway, <laughs> I just, I'm obsessed with the idea of alternative types of vaccine. So you know, you think vaccine, the first thing that comes to mind is needle. Yeah. You're going to get a needle in your shoulder. That's going to be painful, um, <laughs> but it's well worth it. <laughs> um, but there are lots of different types of vaccines that could potentially be used. And some of them are really good in mice and aren't as good in humans. But then there are other examples where there are actually good responses in humans with different vaccine types. Like there's, like this year's influenza vaccine that they're giving to children. I don't know if it's the same for adults, but it's intranasal. And it's really good. Yeah. So it's just a spray up your nose, which is, at least I think, a lot more pleasant than a needle in your shoulder. Mm. But maybe I it depends know. on who you ask. <laughs> um, but anyway, the advantage of that, uh, this isn't just about comfort. Um, it's, yeah. it's generating responses in the right place. So a lot of the time, the best immune response you get to an infection will be where you first encountered it, because that's where the memory cells will generate. Yeah. That's where all the immune responses start to happen. So... It doesn't really make sense if you're vaccinating against something like SARS-CoV-2 to get it in your arm. You might think, why would you get it in your arm? Because you're not just going to randomly have a virus infect your shoulder. But thankfully, mm -hmm. because it provokes good responses in the blood, it's enough to stop severe disease. So if you get yeah. infected through your nose or your mouth, it'll get to your blood, then your body will deal with it. You're fine. The problem is, if you get infected uh, let's say you get the vaccine and you get infected later, but you don't even know because your immune system's dealing with it. Yeah. Your immune system in your nose and in your throat might not be able to deal with it. So that means you can still pass it on to other people because it's living in your nose and throat. So even though you're not getting any disease because the rest of your body through the blood and through that shot in your arm is able to respond, you actually don't have the response in your nose and in your throat. So you can still give it to other people. So mm. these new types of vaccines, these mucosal vaccines, which are nasal and oral, can potentially provoke um, responses in these so-called mucosal sites. So like in your nose, in your throat, in your gut, in different places where it's usually quite hard to get an immune response. Mm. And that could mean you get something called sterilizing immunity. And sterilizing immunity means from the point of entry, that pathogen is not able to live in your body. So you, you won't even have an infection in your nose that you can pass on to other people. If you ever get infected, it will be dealt with. Um, so that's something that you're going to probably need adjuvants for again, because things like the gut and mucosal sites in general 
aren't very good at generating really strong immune responses. Because most of the time, the things that enter your nose or your gut are things that you don't necessarily want to provoke a big immune response to. You don't want a big deal every time you breathe something in. (laughs) Mm, Just like when, as I said before, I think when we were talking about the immune system in the gut, in our gut episode, our microbiome episode, (laughs) like when you eat something new, you don't want your gut immune system to say, I need to attack this because then you'll get sick or you'll have diarrhea or you have some sort of horrible response. Um, But at the same time, you do want your body to respond when it's something that needs to be responded to. So in order for that to happen, you need something that really tells your immune system to wake up. So you'll probably need an adjuvant. So a lot Mm -hmm. of these like nasal vaccines and oral vaccines uh, need need adjuvants in order to actually work. Uh, So yeah, I just think the future of those type of vaccines is... (laughs) is uh is really cool and also relies on adjuvants but it's a very difficult thing to do it's very hard to come up with some adjuvant that tells your yeah. immune system to wake up because it's, it's not say, usually being told to wake up pick something randomly or i mean i'm sure it's evidence-based but like the way you talk about it sometimes i feel like just like adjuvant we just need to pick some random i don't know chemical and see does yeah. this work in whatever a cell or in a mouse um but yeah, also when you're talking about the mice and the cells, and then I started thinking about flies because in genetics, you know, we, whatever. Oh, use you flies. always use flies. I've never used a fly in any experiment. I know. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I was like, how would you inject a fly? And then I was like, you obviously wouldn't because then I was wondering, is the immune response different in invertebrates to vertebrates? And then Yes, like, very you, different, actually. Yeah, that's what um, I was going to say. So I don't ver- know if you would know that or not. So vertebrates actually have an adaptive immune system, these B cells and T cells invertebrates don't so okay. invertebrates don't have any antibodies they don't have any b cells and they don't have any t cells mm-hmm. they rely completely on the innate immune system that generally recognizes things and right. that's enough for them to survive mm-hmm. um but it does mean that they won't get these like sort of long-term memory responses and things that we get so they a lot of them won't necessarily have the same lifespan as us or they'll live with chronic infection more than we will they'll sort of just have infection their whole lives sometimes Whereas yeah. we sometimes get that with things like TB that are really good at hiding from our immune system. But a lot of the time we can deal with a pathogen eventually, whereas they can't all the time. So Aww, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit, bit different for <laughs> invertebrates. Um, yeah, poor things. Even plants, I'm pretty sure, bringing up the plants again, I'm pretty sure they have <laughs> some sort of like response that's not just innate. Um, that's kind of adaptive they have like this I think it's like a gene for gene model whereby there's like one gene that codes for a protein in a plant that'll match up it's like you know the jigsaw puzzle piece to Mm. the pathogen and once you know the pathogen connects with that receptor then the plant is basically immune and that's that's how it triggers immune responses there's actually something we were told the other day in a lecture and I can't remember what it was about the plant immune system there's a certain cell type that, that that's broken and it tells you the plant that there's a there's a pathogen or something like that i don't guard, well guard there's cells? different ways oh there are guard cells maybe i don't know if they're involved but yeah guard cells that would i'm assuming be innate because they're like aren't they right. on the side of stomata you know the little hole no i don't I, know i i don't know much about plants <laughs> okay well <laughs> i think lie. that they're on like the underside of a leaf you know that the way there's the little hole that'll open and close to let oh, water yes, in and out yeah. i think they're called guard cells and so I'm assuming that because it's on the outside, that would be innate because plants have like, 
you know like the cuticle you know on a cactus the way it's hard and then it has a, the spiky stuff as well yes that would be against like you know herbivores and stuff yeah um but yeah that's just side note <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> and, uh, and then yeah be- another another big thing i sort of want to get a bit into is cancer vaccines so yeah i, I didn't know until like last year that cancer vaccines were even an, an idea worth talking about mm-hmm. um because I didn't know anything about them. Um, and now, now I do know a bit about them. I have to write a review on cancer vaccine stuff. And it was so interesting. So, so now you want. know too much about them. I wouldn't call myself an expert, but uh, I, I know a bit about them anyway. So cancer vaccines, sort of a lot of cancer vaccines being tried at the moment anyway, it's pretty much the majority are mm-hmm. not prophylactic. Prophylactic means preventative. So most, oh, yeah, yeah. so when you think of um, a vaccine normally, like the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine mm-hmm. or whatever it is, you get the vaccine and then you can't get infected. Great. Yeah. Um, but cancer vaccines, it's much harder to do this because cancer, as we're probably going to talk about in a future episode on cancer, I'm sure, um, cancer evolves from your own immune cells. So you don't mm-hmm. want to train your immune cells early on to say, attack this thing that's already in the body. Because you might just yeah. provoke an unnecessary, you know, immune response that will, you know, attack your own cells and you'll have some sort of autoimmune yeah. disease. So a lot of cancer vaccines are therapeutic vaccines, which sounds yeah. like a contradiction, but it's actually, <laughs> it is a thing um, where you give the vaccine after you already are experiencing a disease mm-hmm. in, in order to train the immune response to, to fight it because it's, it's living without being fought by the immune yeah. response to the right extent anyway. So there, there are several ways a cancer vaccine works, but pretty much all of them, I think all of them actually <laughs> require some sort of adjuvant. And the mm-hmm. reason you really need an adjuvant for cancer vaccines is because you're trying to get your immune system to attack something that most of the time it thinks it shouldn't be attacking. Yeah. Because cancer, the vast majority of the time, um, looks to your immune cells pretty similar to the rest of your cells. Mm. Um, so there are a few little hallmarks that make it a bit different, which is why immune cells can usually pick up early cancer. Like if you just have one cancer cell that randomly develops in your body, which I think I remember reading, that happens about once a day in our bodies yeah. where a, a cancer cell just develops. But the reason we don't actually get the disease most of the time is because one of our immune cells, especially something called an NK cell, natural killer cell, um, attacks the it's cancer. Pretty cool before, name. That's the yeah, best it is name, a name of all the immune cells, I think. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it kills them before it's able to do anything. It's only when a cancer cell does something really sneaky to evade the immune response, that's when it starts to grow into a tumor and become a problem. Yeah. So there are several different types of cancer vaccines. There are some that, like the other vaccines I was talking about, are subunit. So you're putting in a part of the cancer, like, like an antigen, a cancer antigen, mm-hmm. and you're training your immune system to recognize that. And that so- wouldn't be on any other normal cell. Just so, uh, so a lot of the time, the, the ones they're using to avoid you attacking healthy cells for your own body mm-hmm. is they will try to pick something that they know is on the patient's cancer, but that is that has mutated a little bit. So let's say okay. there's a protein involved in cell growth because cancer mm-hmm. cells grow a lot um, and they've mutated it. So it looks a bit different, but it also means the cancer can grow faster, which is what it wants yeah. to do. Then that's something you can target. You can say, okay. I'm training the immune system to recognize this. So it'll only attack this, all, this mutated form of this protein. Yeah. 
because it looks so different. Is this would this be patient specific or can you do it for a broad group? So or a lot like of time, like the personalized cancer vaccines are a goal that a lot of people are striving towards and hope mm -hmm. that we can get someday that you'll be able to pick out an antigen from a patient and then use that in a vaccine. Yeah, that, that's quite hard to do because you're characterizing, yeah. you know, a different response every time. So a lot of the time, different types of cancers will share features. So, for example, mm -hmm. breast cancer will have certain mutations most of the time that another type of cancer might not have. Yeah. So a lot of the time in cancer vaccines, you're picking one of these. Yeah. Because you know the type of cancer, you might not mm -hmm. know specifically what's in it, but you know there's a good chance it has this little protein yeah. mutation. So I'm going to mm -hmm. use this in the vaccine. Um, but again, this doesn't work all the time. And what can happen is even if you get a good response, because cancer is so good at evolving and changing, it might just stop using that protein and use something else. So that's yeah. a problem. You need that to attack <laughs> in a lot of cancer therapies, you have to attack cancer on multiple fronts. So you use, so you might use therapeutic cancer vaccine and chemotherapy and the checkpoint inhibitors, which are something I talked about before in the science is cool episode. Um, oh, no, no checkpoints. I'm again, yeah. I was like, Oh my oh. God, now you're going to be talking about the checkpoints I'm talking about. No, I'm not. What? <laughs> there's checkpoints. Okay. Everyone needs to know there's checkpoints in the cell cycle. They're different to Killian's checkpoints. Apparently. Yes, what are yours are. again? I forget. This is like the third time I've asked you. So when, when an immunologist talks about checkpoints, um, they're not talking about the cell cycle. Uh, they're usually talking about, um, immune checkpoints. So yeah, but I think it could be the same thing. I it's think not, it's not, it's not. Oh, so God an immune checkpoint is something that tells an immune cell whether to attack or not attack. So you have these molecules like PD-1 and CTLA-4 that are expressed on cells that essentially are able to tell immune cells, am I healthy or am I diseased? So if, if an immune cell is about to attack one of your cells, but yeah. it's expressing a checkpoint to say, don't attack me, then it'll go, oh, okay, I won't attack you. Because most of the time, if a cell is in danger, it can tell. So yeah. a cell will say, okay, I'm in danger, look at me. And then if the immune cell sees something wrong, it'll kill it. That's, that's a very basic way of describing that's it. That's kind of similar, kind of similar. Like the, in the cell cycle, the checkpoints are like there because you know there's different stages of the cell cycle you know you can go yeah. from the g to the s i think it's like growth some whatever s stands for there's another growth and at, before you move from each phase like yeah. to the next there's like a checkpoint to be like is this okay or like is there a mutation yeah. and does it need to be killed i don't know if I'm, i need to look into if this is the same thing or not because we could yeah, be talking I, about the same thing with like a different angle that maybe. could be true yeah yeah you know, sometimes that yeah. happens yeah, but it, maybe might, it, it isn't. might be true. I don't know. I could just be making it up. But but what um, cancer does anyway is it it upregulates, which means it like expresses lots of them, these receptors that tell the immune system that it's fine. So oh. it, it learns to say, okay, I'm going to always tell the immune system I'm fine and then it won't yeah. kill me. So you need to give these things called checkpoint inhibitors, which block those molecules to tell the immune system, no, you do need to kill this. Um, but unfortunately, if you administer those across the body, you might also yeah. have some non-specific responses. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, your immune cells are trained to only attack something that looks a bit off anyway. So you shouldn't get too many non-specific responses. So these checkpoint inhibitors are generally a really good cancer therapy and are some of the most effective cancer therapies ever. But as I said, because cancer evolves, 
you really need to attack it on multiple fronts or it'll just change from something you're already attacking. It'll say, okay, I won't express that thing anymore. So you can't attack me. Yeah. Um, so that's why with cancer vaccines, you usually need to also give checkpoint inhibitors or also give chemotherapy or other things like that. Um, one interesting thing about the personalized cancer vaccines is the idea that you'll be able to break tumors apart and actually train your immune system to fight just what's in your cancer. So if you administer the vaccine in a certain way, you can actually mm -hmm. destroy the tumor or at least parts of the tumor. So then it doesn't matter if you don't know what exactly type of cancer the patient has. Because if you're just administering this adjuvant, this thing that tells the immune system, wake up and attack this thing. Mm -hmm. So you're injecting this into a tumor and your yeah. immune system's like, what do I attack? But because you've broken bits of the tumor off, it goes, oh, these things. And then it recognizes that and it finds everything that oh. looks like that. So it finds your tumor exactly and kills it. How do you, how do you break up the tumor? Um, so this is done with uh, something called like an intratumoral injection a lot of the time. That's, okay. that's, that's one way. So if you think of like physically sticking a needle, it's sort mm -hmm. of a crude way to imagine it, but that's essentially what it is. Yeah. And that will physically break apart a tumor. Um, some of the cells will break off and okay. burst and different things. And then your immune system will see that. Right. So uh, yeah. th that's one of the ways. Yeah. Um, and you also have people design these delivery systems uh, which are really cool, which deliver um, specific parts of a protein directly to immune cells. So let's say, you know, this type of protein is in SARS-CoV-2 or in cancer or in whatever mm -hmm. it is, you can put it in this little sort of, it's almost like a, so it's called a vesicle. Um, a bubble. But you can, a bubble. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. <laughs> so they have these bubbles that they're able to generate that are really good at holding pretty much any type of protein. So you yeah. put the protein in this bubble and you put it into the person's body and this bubble actually has receptors on it. That means it will interact with the type of immune cell you want it to. So it'll mm -hmm. go over to the immune cell, then it'll burst the bubble. So your immune system will be like, oh, what's this beside me all of a sudden? And it'll <laughs> recognize the protein, which is really cool. And that's, that's another thing that is being done in combination with adjuvants. So a lot of the time you might put adjuvants in this bubble too. Because mm -hmm. if you just have a random protein floating beside an immune cell, it might not recognize that this is something I need to attack. It'll just go, oh, yeah. protein. Um, yeah. But if you also have an adjuvant when the bubble bursts, it'll go, whoa, there's something dangerous here. And then it'll say, yeah. oh, this protein, that must be the dangerous thing. Mm -hmm. So adjuvants in a, in a weird way are almost yeah. like tricking the immune system into thinking something's dangerous. How, it, how does it, should it be. not... I was going to say, how does the immune system not rec like recognize the adjuvant as being the dangerous thing? Like, um, because, not like so adjuvants aren't typically made of proteins. So, okay. so your immune systems, like especially your B and T cells, uh, they mostly recognize proteins. B cells can okay. sometimes recognize sugars and things like that. Yeah. Adjuvants are usually made of other things like uh, certain chemical polymers or uh basically chemicals that can't be grabbed onto by your immune system. Right. They're, so they're more like signals. So your immune mm -hmm. system knows, okay, I know this chemical means something bad is happening, yeah. but it can't grab onto the chemical. It can only grab yeah. onto a protein. Okay. That makes sense. So, so yeah. So an adjuvant isn't a protein. So when the protein is there, it thinks, oh, this is, must be what's causing all this right. chemical damage around me. If yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So, cool. um, yeah, so that's pretty much, uh, 
how, how adjuvants happen. And I, I did get to talk a little bit about delivery systems as well, which is something that's cool. And a brief thing I want to say about delivery systems too is I, you definitely remember me telling you about this paper when I read it. Uh, Maybe. This bacteria delivery system. Where Continue. You, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah still. <laughs> where, uh, basically, there's this lab that uh, genetically modified bacteria to deliver a cancer oh, drug. Oh, yeah, yeah, you did tell me about that. So they genetically modified a bacteria that so that it would be able to find tumors, and then when it got to the tumor, it would explode. So they pr programmed all this in the genetics that when it gets to the tumor, it explodes. And th the reason it's good that it explodes there is because they also genetically modified it so it would be producing a cancer therapy inside it. So it's full of this yeah. cancer therapy that it gets to the tumor, it explodes, and kills most or a lot of the tumor and it, they could also program it so it replicates a lot of the time when it gets there before it explodes yeah so the yeah. bacteria finds the tumor replicates and replicates so there's loads of bacteria and then they explode around the same time which is just it's just so cool yeah that's crazy i yeah. don't completely understand how that works yeah so and... I, they, they were using like quorum sensing so it's this thing bacteria yeah. are able to do where they can communicate with each other yeah. and do things like that where they burst together or they do certain activities mm -hmm. and they just hook that up to you know bursting essentially i don't i don't get a lot of the genetic stuff is beyond mm. me but uh quorum sensing i think is like sensing how many other bacterial, bacterial cells yeah. are around you yeah that's what yeah. it was because it, it was when no this was the genius part <laughs> so <laughs> let's say um a good good amount of treatment was when there were about like 10 bacteria bursting so okay. what they would do is they would keep replicating until they recognize that there's like, let's say 20, mm -hmm. then 10 of them would burst. And then oh, the rest of yeah. them would be there to keep replicating so they can do another round of therapy. So, yeah. they'd, so they'd sense each other so That's that they would crazy. know. Yeah. So that they yeah. would know that they shouldn't all die. They should keep going and keep living and then bursting. And there's still some left and keep doing that until the cancer has gone. And that, that's just so cool. That's mad. Yeah, yeah. that's really weird because I know that by here bacteria do other things like that where they'll do a certain activity in a specific ratio of like like you're saying in this case it would be half are going to die and half are going to keep replicating and they do other things like half are going to turn on I don't know DNA response genes half are going to do this and well not half and half whatever yeah. there's different ratios but it's just I don't I still and we learned about it and I should know but <laughs> I will know I will know for the exams I'll know <laughs> how that actually works um yeah it's pretty insane but what I think is amazing is it's this whole area called synthetic biology where you're sort of training cells to do things they don't normally do so mm. all that machinery already is there so you have genes in the cell to tell it when it needs to explode if something yeah is damaging it you have genes to say this many bacteria are around me and what mm -hmm. they're able to do is connect those genes to say yeah. oh so when this bacteria are around you then you explode so mm -hmm. it's just, they, they describe that almost like circuitry you know you're just yeah. moving the wires around and connecting yeah. things that weren't normally connected to do the things you want and i just think it's a really fascinating area of that is really that um, is really cool and by the way i should say that all this stuff was done in mice so in mice they got really good responses the tumors were destroyed all that sort of thing mm. and i assume they'll be moving to human trials at some stage but again these things are hard to get into humans for a variety of reasons one they've probably been working on this mouse model for years <laughs> you know yeah. they've been trying so hard to get it to work perfectly in mice 
And then when they do it in humans for the first time, it's not going to be the same. Humans are yeah. not the same as mice. So it'll take lots of optimization. Also, people are afraid if you do this kind of therapy, might your immune system react too much to the bacteria? Could you actually mm-hmm. get some massive immune response that isn't worth giving this therapy? So mm-hmm. they'll have to figure all these things out. But I think if you can sort out those problems, it's just such an ingenious way of treating yeah. disease. You know. Do you remember how they administered the bacteria? Like, was it I, an injection or something? I feel like it was injection, but I, I can't remember exactly. Yeah. I, I remember actually the name of the author, in case someone looked it up, is Chowdhury et al. Um, so if you look up, uh, it's C-H-O-W-D-U-R-Y, I believe, Chowdhury et al. Um, and, oh yeah, and his first name was Sreyan. I don't know why I remember this. S-R-E-Y-A-N. I think it's because I thought that is so cool. I want to look up who this guy is. Yeah. So Sreyan Chowdhury. If you look up his name followed by the word like bacteria or the word nature, because of course it was published in Nature, the top journal, yeah. um, you'll, you'll find it and it's, uh, it's really cool. Yeah, that um, is pretty cool. So yeah, I think the only other thing I had written here that I was kind of wanted to talk about was just briefly, I want to say that vaccines and adjuvants and stuff, they're not just for people. Um, we need to also vaccinate animals. And I mm-hmm. think some of these emerging pandemics show that that we, we can actually potentially stop these pandemics before they even get to us. If we get really good at vaccinating different species against diseases that we know are going to jump to us. So like, let's say we start mm-hmm. off being selfish. We only make yeah. vaccines for the animals if the disease looks like it could jump into us at some stage. Yeah. That could be great, you know, because it would, on one hand, obviously it would help the animals um, from suffering from those disease, diseases, mm-hmm. but it'll also stop these pandemics that are going to kill or could kill eventually so many people if they jump to humans so we actually can kill these things at the source if we vaccinate animals properly um but obviously vaccinating animals is difficult you're not going to get them all to line up to a vaccine yeah i Uh, i remember i think you showed me or you sent me a paper right bats i just remember bats licking each other or something exactly (laughs) So, (laughs) so so there's this vaccine yeah that is an oral vaccine and it was a paste so they were putting this paste on the back of like, so let's say you have a colony of, I don't know how many bats are in a colony, but I'm just going to say <laughs> 100. For the, for the purpose of this, I'm saying 100. Uh, okay. So, so let's say they had 100. I know it's way more than that. Anyway, 100. And they capture only 10 bats and they put this paste on their back. And this yeah. paste is a vaccine. Right. Because what they found out was bats have this behavior where they're always going over to each other and licking their backs to like groom each yeah. other. Yeah. And, and it's not like they're always grooming the same bats. They groom loads of different bats in their colony because they're all friends. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so all you need to do is put this paste on the back of about 10 of them. And if the paste is designed to stay there long enough, you'll eventually have all or almost all of the bats will eventually lick this paste and ingest this vaccine that'll protect them against a certain disease. And they in, put the paste in the bats that they're putting the paste you know the way they're putting it on their backs surely yeah. they put some in their mouth as well just because i assume so or, just, or, they could, okay. or maybe yeah. they didn't because they wanted to see if they'd lick the other ones yeah that's what i was gonna say yeah. they probably did that so yeah i just think that's interesting as well because if we start vaccinating animals we'll need to really immunologists will need to consult with the zoologists you know mm. we'll need to talk yeah. about okay like that will work for bats but that won't work for some other animals that don't groom each other so yeah. we'll actually need to know about animal behavior to do mm-hmm. vaccines in animals right because we need to know yeah. okay what's a certain thing that they do that will mean they can 
take this vaccine without knowing it because obviously yeah. no animal is gonna <laughs> you know know what no, a vaccine yeah. is and know it should yeah. take it um so like and again if you get adjuvants that can work in these other systems like oral vaccines and nasal vaccines this this is way easier mm-hmm. you know because all you need to do then if you get an oral vaccine that works is maybe put something in a big pile of food and get a lot of yeah. animals to eat it true whereas yeah. right now if we're just focused on focusing on injectable vaccines you need to go and inject every one of those animals which it's not going to be an easy thing to do no, that's not going to be a pleasant think, experience for the animal either i don't think that would happen that's no to exactly. me doesn't seem realistic at all no um you, But just on that, I think that when you're saying there that the immunologist will have to, you know, consult with the zoologists and things like that. Like, I think the future of research really is everyone talking to each other. Like, there needs to be communication. Even even when we're talking about checkpoints, even if they're not the same, okay, they could have been. (laughs) And like, you know, we would have different aspects and different ways of looking at the same idea. And by talking with you know, people from different backgrounds, you're actually like, oh my God, I never thought of it that way and things like that. And another thing about injecting or not injecting, but vaccinating animals is, I don't know, not even logistically, but just how people would respond to that. Mm. I don't know if, I'm. there definitely would be people that are like, no, you're not Uh, vaccinating them because they can't consent or whatever. Yeah. Um, But that would be something, an interesting debate. And I don't know. Mm what side I would take (laughs) but um yeah that is it's it's something interesting to think about though anyways Mm. yeah because yeah it definitely would help humankind but um I like surely it's not doing anything bad to the animals is it no if you get if you get the vaccine right then you're not going to do anything about the animals all you're doing is also helping if you get the vaccine wrong uh (laughs) shout out to that scrape what what episode was that the we the science where we talked about science stories the scrapey vaccine in the sheep if anyone remembers that where it's basically this so usually whatever you would you'd go to the infected individual and you can isolate whatever is infecting them and then you can inject it to provoke an immune response so in this sheep they took out whatever they thought was was causing scrapey and they injected it into (laughs) a load of other sheep but it turns out that by doing that you actually just give all the sheep the infection because Mm. it's yeah uh, yeah, it was a prion protein which basically just means oh yes it's a misfolded protein and it just causes other proteins to misfold so, so yes, it's just right. sort of you, cascade of disease yeah exactly so you're you definitely would want to get it right before you start yeah. injecting and or vaccinating excuse I me i think part of the reason that probably happened and other things like that is because at least at the moment we don't have the same standards for like let's say animal vaccines that we do for humans and that, that mm. does kind of make sense because yeah a lot of people do not see those things as equal yeah <laughs> um yeah. you know like we need to test something a lot before we put it into humans but mm-hmm. we also need to test something a lot, but not quite as much for animals. But yeah. if we start doing in the future, these large scale vaccination campaigns, like let's vaccinate all the elephants, yeah. we're going to need to be pretty sure this vaccine is really good and doesn't do anything bad before we do that. We're going to need the same kind of checks we have in human vaccines. I can hardly do uh, like a clinical trial with elephants. Where are you going to get them? There's not going to be enough of them because they're going extinct, guys. Global okay. warming is okay. Well, maybe elephants, <laughs> elephants were a bad example. <laughs> Um, um but something maybe yeah. more plentiful but yeah that's actually an interesting challenge that if you're trying to vaccinate uh, a group that's going extinct how many I do don't... you take for your clinical trial oh uh, you definitely wouldn't i don't you, think that's you think you just try it and just no no i don't think you would vaccinate them you just let them die 
No, you wouldn't let them die. Why would they be dying? Let's say they're dying from an infectious disease. That, so there are species out there, okay, like some yeah, frog that's species. That's different. That's different. Yeah. If they're already dying and it's like an attempt to save them. But I mean, if you're vaccinating them or, you know, because we were saying we're vaccinating them to prevent yeah, yeah. them from getting into humans, which is yes. completely different to vaccinating them because they're already sick, in yes, my opinion. Yes, that's true. That's true. So it's a bit different. Yeah, um, yeah. So no, I wouldn't just, I don't know. Yeah, so it can be a bit of an ethical question then in that sense. Yeah, it definitely yeah. is, so, I think, anyways. Yeah. It's, so there, there would be so much discuss. debate about it, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Mm, I'm not great at debating now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what side I'd take. I, I'm so easily convinced. Uh, for So both sides could talk to me. I'd be like, oh my God, yeah, you're so right. Vaccinate them. And I'd be like, no, no, don't do it. Um, but yeah. If anyone has a compelling argument as to whether we should vaccinate yeah. the elephants or not, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a completely hypothetical example. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think for all these things, it would depend on the situation. You know, there's no... Yeah, it yes is, no. yeah. Like, like even me, who loves vaccines, I wouldn't just be like, yes, let's all vaccinate all things ever. Yeah. You know, obviously, you need to always weigh up benefits and costs. Um, but, you know, if we absolutely nail in the next few years through vaccine and adjuvant studies or whatever it is, and we know how to make a vaccine that's always safe and always effective, then, mm. then I don't see why you wouldn't, you know what I mean? But that's, yeah. again, that's very hypothetical as well. We're probably not gonna yeah. get to the stage where we always yeah. know a certain vaccine's gonna work. Mm -hmm. So yeah. yeah, like most things, it's complicated. It depends <laughs> on the context. There's, there's no yeah. easy yes or no answer to this question. And yeah. that's quite a bit of a tangent from <laughs> what I originally was talking about. But I'm glad no, because that was relevant. one of the things I wanted to mention that I think are cool. Animal vaccines, because yeah. no one talks about those. No, you know? I, I love, actually have Of course, I love human it. vaccines, but, you know, sometimes you have to think about the animals too. Yeah, you do, for sure. So, uh, yeah, I think I've ranted about pretty much all my big obsessions in science. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah we might leave it there then yeah so, and yeah, next, so next week, week I'll have yes. a little rant <laughs> yeah, about exactly. what I like in science which is obviously genetics kind of gene regulation that's that's all I'm gonna say gene okay. regulation Looking sounds boring when you say it like that but I promise <laughs> it's really I'll, interesting I'll try to come up with some <laughs> questions I know some things about gene regulation uh from yeah. lectures and stuff but uh probably not as much as you <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd imagine it's, yeah it's really it's really fun I actually really do enjoy it yeah. Um, well, well, yeah. We'll leave it there to for that. today. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, in. everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jinx. Okay. Yeah. We'll right. just see you all next week. <laughs> see you next week. Bye. Bye.